For the next several weeks, we will be reading from the prophets. Prophets in the ancient Afro-Asiatic world were messengers, delivering words from God to the people. Sometimes these are words of warning. Sometimes they are words of comfort. Usually they're a combination of both. The prophets we are reading from are referred to as the classical prophets. They aren't miracle workers. They speak mainly to common people and not to kings and power brokers. Sometimes they do strange things called prophetic acts, but they do them to make a spiritual point. These classical prophets include Micah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, and others. After King Solomon, the ancient kingdom of Israel split into north and south. The north's capital was Samaria. The south's capital was Jerusalem. This morning we hear Micah prophesying to the southern kingdom after the northern kingdom has been invaded and sacked and the people carried away. First, he warns them that they are no better than their northern relatives, that Jerusalem can fall just like Samaria did. Then, he says that their deliverer is not going to come from the urban halls of power, but from a small village, from an unexpected place. And then finally, he challenges their expectation of what it means to please God. His overall message is that if people choose to live outside the boundaries of God's good plan for the world, if they choose to live only for themselves, they will not experience the beauty and freedom of God's shalom, of God's flourishing and peace and wholeness. Here's the thing, the people already knew that, just like we know it. But God continues to send them prophets to remind them. And so, readings from Micah 1, 5, and 6. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? And what is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? And from Micah 5. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, how will you will come from me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. And from beginning in verse 6, 
He has shown you, O people, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of God for all people. Thanks be to God. Sometimes the Bible is really clear. Sometimes it's clearer than we want it to be. Sometimes it's clearer than we're comfortable with. And friends, the last part of what we read this morning is one of those passages. There's really no way to mistranslate it, to twist it, to twist the interpretation, to pretend it means anything different from what it says. And you all know by now that there's not a lot of times when I would say that. The Bible has a lot of room for nuance. The situation of the original audience matters tremendously for our understanding of it. And it can mean different things to different people in different times and in different places. The Bible moves with us. And yet, sometimes, we can attempt whatever hermeneutical gymnastics we want, and we will still be facing something that is crystal clear. So let's take a look at this section that most of you probably know pretty well. It's written in very simple language, and so I just want to offer you some insight on the key words based on what they mean in Hebrew. So first of all, God has shown us what is good. That's a pretty bland, nondescript word in the English language, right? Good. We use it for a lot of things. But in Hebrew, it's the word from Genesis 1 for what God thinks of creation. God makes light and dark and water and sky and land and plants and animals and people, and God says that it is good. They are exactly as they are intended to be. And God has shown us what is good, what has the same quality as the world as it's intended to be. And not only does God show us what that is, but according to the text, God requires us to do it. Now, many people in progressive churches like ours are not entirely comfortable with the idea of what God requires of us. Even I usually use words with you like God invites us and God woos us and God offers us, right? But this text says requires. This language of requirement is covenant language. And if you've been here with us this fall, you've heard me talking about covenant over and over. Covenant is about who we are and whose we are and how we will treat each other. And so what this text says is that if we want to live in covenant with God, then this is what we must do. Now, if we don't want to live in covenant with God, then don't do it, right? Because God doesn't force us. That's where the offer is. The offer is in do you want the covenant? And then when we say, yes, I want to live in covenant with God, then, then these are the requirements. 
I personally think that life is infinitely better in the covenant, but everyone is free to make their own decision. If we choose to live in the covenant, here are the requirements. There are three. One, to do justice. To shape it. To make justice as God made the earth. To bear forth justice as the trees bear forth fruit according to their kind. And justice is God's standards. To call things what they are. To distinguish between good and evil and to not make any peace with oppression, as our opening prayer said. Now, Plato's Republic, how many of you are, at least you've heard the title of Plato's Republic, right? Hadn't read it fully either. Plato's Republic says that justice is whatever is advantageous to the strong. The Old Testament says that justice is whatever is advantageous for widows orphans, immigrants, and the poor. The people of God are called to actively shape a world where God's standards are upheld for the good of those who are not strong. Now, the lie that our society wants us to believe is that people in privilege will suffer if justice is done for the less privileged. That is a lie designed to divide us. Things will change, yes. Power will shift, yes. But it will result in everyone having enough instead of some people having more really than what they need and other people having not enough to survive. And when we follow Jesus in willingly sacrificing ourselves, this is done at our own, at our own choice. So when we follow Jesus in willingly sacrificing ourselves, we will gain so much more than we could ever lose. Next, we're called to love mercy. That word love in Hebrew is pretty much how we use it. We're called to adore mercy, to desire it, to embrace it. And mercy in Hebrew is the word hesed, which we talked about when we talked about the book of Ruth this summer. Some of you may remember. This word is used 250 times in the Old Testament, always in the context of a relationship, either from God to humanity or between humans. It is translated as mercy. It is translated as kindness, loving kindness, faithfulness. It means love and loyalty, steadfastness and persistence, it is the attitude that both parties in a covenant must maintain towards each other. So again, covenant language. And when this Hebrew word gets translated into Greek in the New Testament, the word there is grace. In our relationships with one another, we are called to love grace to be gracious, to treat each other the way God treats us, to be patient, to see the best in each other, to ask for help and to receive help. And then finally, we're called to walk humbly with God. Throughout the scriptures, this metaphor of walking refers to our total way of life, 
The books of kings say that one king walked in the ways of his fathers or didn't walk in the ways of his fathers. And in the New Testament, the early Jesus movement is called the way, as in the path that we are walking. So this metaphor of walking, we're talking about total way of life. And on that path, we are called to walk humbly. The only other time that this word is used in this particular form in the Old Testament is in Proverbs 11.2, which says, With pride comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Humility is the key to our spiritual maturity. Humility doesn't mean thinking less of ourselves than we should. It means thinking of ourselves as we should. When we are humble, we remember that all people are created equally in God's image, glorious and fallible. When we are humble, we are able to apologize and we're able to forgive. When we're humble, we're generous towards those with whom we disagree. When we're humble, we remember that everything we have is a gift and we are the stewards of it. Walk humbly with God, love mercy, do justice. Now notice how close that is to what Jesus said are the two greatest commandments, to love God and to love people. He said that in those two you have summed up the law and the prophets that we're reading from this morning. These three requirements specifically address all the spheres of our life. The personal, the interpersonal, and the public. Personal, we walk humbly with God. Interpersonal, we love mercy in the way that we treat those with whom we have relationships. And publicly, we do justice. Dr. Cornell West, an African-American professor and philosopher, says, never forget that justice is what love looks like in public. These three requirements are a measuring stick that we can use to evaluate ourselves and our church, both Zion and the Church Universal. As an individual, what am I doing to nurture a humble walk with God? How am I loving mercy in my relationships with other people? And where am I doing justice in the world. And here at Zion, as we continue through our stewardship program, are we putting our time and finances into doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God? Are we making those priorities? These three things are all interconnected. We can't be satisfied that we're walking humbly with God if we're treating other people poorly and ignoring issues of injustice. And we can't be satisfied with being nice to our friends if we're allowing widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor to be trampled on. We're doing the trampling ourselves. And my progressive brothers and sisters, we cannot be satisfied with going to protests and writing our senators and serving those in need if we're starving ourselves spiritually. The good news is that I think the more we do one of these, the more our hearts yearn to do them all. 
If we are pursuing spiritual maturity, doing any of these is going to lead us into doing all of them. And according to the text, it doesn't matter what else we do if we don't do these. We're now in the third week of our stewardship program. And when we chose to do this program, I decided that I wasn't going to go looking for stewardship texts to preach on. I was just going to preach on whatever came up in the lectionary plan. And you guys, if I had gone looking for texts, there is no way that I would have come up with three weeks in a row where the text included the message, it's not about the money. (laughs) Week one, Solomon asks for wisdom instead of riches. Week two, Naaman comes to be healed and brings this lavish gift, and Elijah's like, no thanks, I don't need your gift. Week three, God requires justice and mercy and humility and not lavish sacrifices. It's not about the money. Ain't nobody crazy enough to, pay, to pick those as their stewardship text, okay? <laughs> Apparently, I honestly believe what God wants us to hear during this stewardship program is that our giving is not the most important thing. We need to give. There's no precedent to say that we will only give our time and not give any money. All through the scriptures, both the Old and the New Testament, God's people survive by pooling their resources in good times and bad times to care for those who lead their worship, to care for their sacred space, to fund their celebrations, and to provide for those in need among them. Even the poorest contribute something. That's always the pattern. But there is also no precedent to say, I will only give money and not time. I think some of you might actually be more intimidated to turn in your time and talent card than you are to turn in your pledge card. (laughs) Because some of you have been overworked by a church in the past. Some of you have been underappreciated in the past. And I commit to you as your pastor that I will do everything in my power to make sure that doesn't happen here. God is bringing the people that we need to do the things that God is calling us to do. And so you should do the work that you love and that you feel empowered to do, even when it's a stretch for you. And you should give the amount that God is encouraging you to give, even if it's a stretch for you. The good news is that the gospel is personal, but it is not individual. We are, each of us, called to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God and to contribute financially, but we are not called to do it alone. We survive because we are together. The Psalms says, God sets the lonely in families. And thank God, I thank God that Sam and I have been set in this family of faith to work together on the things that God is calling us to do in the world. We have a high calling. We have been blessed to be a blessing. And we are called to do that together. Amen. Amen. As Brian comes back to the piano, I want to invite you into a space of quiet reflection for a few minutes. This is another time that we take to listen. There are so few spaces and times in our culture where we're quiet and listening. 
So you may want to close your eyes to help you focus. You may want to notice if you're feeling tension anywhere in your body. Because there is nothing but grace and love here now. Where is God inviting you into more life and more joy and more freedom? Because the kingdom of God, the values, work a little bit differently than the world. In the kingdom, we find freedom in our finances as we give more away. In the kingdom, we find life in service. And in the kingdom, we find joy as we face injustice head on. share with you something I read this week. Do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justice now. Love mercy now. Walk humbly now. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. Now I'll say a closing prayer. God of justice, you sent your prophet Micah to proclaim justice and peace to a world that lacked both. Make us instruments of your justice and peace so that your world might prosper. Amen.